Good morning. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We're going to read the first half of these 42 verses, so that is 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. There arose a division among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you're very good to open any eyes at all, and we particularly thank you for opening eyes that we might behold your Son. Father, I pray for everyone here with us today, and those who hear this message later, Lord, that their eyes would be open and be open more widely and see see the shepherd of the sheep and hear his voice, hear him more rightly and follow him better. Father, thank you for Jesus, all that you do in him through him, by him, and because of him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, Jimmy said in the worship, he said, Jesus is everything to me. And then he said, he comes searching for me. He rescues me. And in order to do so, he has to die. It is in his death at the cross that he accomplishes these things. That is exactly on track with what Jesus declares in this marvelous passage this morning. And that was a, that was a wonderful kind of a prelude uh, to what we're looking at. In the last chapter of Luke's gospel, 
two of Jesus' disciples are walking on a road from Jerusalem to Emmaus shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. The resurrected Jesus shows up on that same road and he comes alongside those two disciples and begins talking with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. They begin lamenting in front of Jesus the death of Jesus and they are puzzling about the fact that his tomb was found to be empty three days after his death. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. See, Jesus, as he walked with those disciples, walked them through the Old Testament to show them what it said about him. Have you ever pondered the the content of that conversation on the road to Emmaus? Have you ever tried to kind of figure out what passages Jesus went to and what he talked about? Well, for the first part of our message this morning, we're going to look at one of the great themes that pointed to Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And I can pretty much guarantee you that this was part of the content that Jesus shared with those those disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you'll track with me for the next several minutes, I assure you, you will never see Jesus' statements about the Good Shepherd in John 10 the same way again. One of the most ever-present threads that God weaves throughout the Old Testament is His, His promise of a faithful shepherd king who will care for and lead and protect His people. Not only Will he care for and lead and protect them? He will save them. This hugely important theme shows up as far back as the books of Moses at the very beginning of the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 27, right after God told Moses that his life on earth was about to end, Moses asked God to appoint a man who would step into Moses' role to lead God's people on God's behalf. Listen to Moses' prayer, his request of God. May Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in. That's herding terminology. That the congregation of Yahweh may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. God answered Moses' request by appointing Joshua to be that shepherd, to go in and go out and come in before God's sheep, to lead them out and to bring them in. I believe that it is no coincidence that the name Joshua is the Hebrew name from which the name Jesus comes. That name means, and we said it this morning at the worship, it means Yahweh saves. Joshua, the mortal, imperfect shepherd over God's people, foreshadowed and pointed to the coming perfect shepherd whose name means Yahweh saves. Now fast forward about 400 years to another imperfect shepherd over God's people whom God directly connects 
to the promised perfect shepherd king. That imperfect shepherd is David. If you ask any Jew today who was the great shepherd king of Israel, they'll give you only one answer. David. Before God made David king over Israel, he was a shepherd boy. And as imperfect shepherds go, he was a really good one. He loved his sheep with a fiercely protective love, as good shepherds must. And he loved the people of God with a fiercely protective love, as God's rulers must. When David was still a boy, almost certainly still a teenage boy, the Philistine army led by a warrior, a giant warrior named Goliath, came up against the army of Israel demanding that Israel appoint a man to duel with him, to fight with him to the death. And that would determine which of the two nations would serve the other. When this teenage shepherd boy heard of Goliath's challenge, he went before King Saul, the first king of Israel, and he, first earthly king, and he, David, (laughs) the youngest and apparently the shortest of the eight sons of Jesse, declared to Saul that he would go up and kill Goliath by the power of God. When Saul explained to David that he was biting off a whole lot more than a little runt of a teenager like him was going to be able to to deliver, here's what David said to Saul. He said, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him, and I attacked him, and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has taunted the armies of the living God. Would you like to meet some teenagers like that? That's the way a good God-appointed shepherd does business. David told Saul that it was God who had always delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and it would be God who would deliver Israel that very day from Goliath and the army of the Philistines, and that is, of course, exactly what happened. Armed with nothing but a sling and a batch of stones, David slew that giant with one shot. Later in 2 Samuel 7, after David had become established as God's anointed king over his people, God said to David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be ruler over my people Israel. He's saying, I took you from being a shepherd over sheep to being a shepherd over my people. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And then God made an amazing covenant with His shepherd king, David. He promised to raise up a seed, a descendant, singular, of David, whose house and whose kingdom would endure forever before God. Through that descendant, God told David, His throne, David's throne, would be established forever. 
Now David's son Solomon fulfilled the promise of a of an heir to the throne for one generation. And then you know what happened to Solomon? He died. And he was buried, and he's still in his grave, just like David. The descendant that God promised to give to the imperfect shepherd king David, the one whose kingdom will endure forever, was not Solomon. That descendant is the perfect shepherd king, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do we know that? Fast forward again another 400 years to the days of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God indicted the bad shepherds of Israel, the priests and prophets and kings who were supposed to care for His people and feed them and protect them, but who instead fed themselves by killing God's sheep. God said to Ezekiel, prophesy and say to those shepherds, those bad shepherds, thus says the Lord God, and that's that God, the word God is capitalized. You remember what we said last week that means? If you see L-O-R-D in all caps or if you see G-O-D in all caps, that's Yahweh, the covenant name that God gave to, to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 3. The name that Jesus claimed for Himself in John chapter 8, verse 58. I am. Say, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost but with force and with severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and they were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and over every high hill. And my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. God continues with that scathing indictment for several more verses in Ezekiel 34. And then He says this, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I Myself, I Myself will search for My sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for My sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the Lord. I will feed them in a good pasture. And their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord Yahweh. Now let me ask you, does that sound like something that God intends to delegate? 
This is the language that God uses when he said to Israel in the Pentateuch and the law, if you don't care for the downtrodden, I will, and it won't be good for you. This is not something God plans to delegate. But look at this. In that very same chapter of Ezekiel, after declaring that he himself will be Israel's perfect shepherd, he says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Then after promising in two chapters later in chapter 36, the new covenant in the Old Testament, promising to cleanse His people, to take their hearts of stone and give them hearts hearts of flesh to cause them to walk in His commandments and ordinances. God declares that He will, in chapter 37, reanimate the dead, dry bones of Israel. And He will gather Israel and Judah together into one nation again. And then He says, they will be My people and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them. And they will, have, they will all have one shepherd. And they will all walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons. For how long? Forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. There in Ezekiel chapter 37, God identifies a person who will be His appointed shepherd king to care for and protect and lead His people. And He calls that shepherd king, my servant David. But David had been dead for 400 years. So who is this shepherd king that God would appoint to rule over His people? Beloved, He is the very seed, the very descendant of David that God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is the only begotten Son of God, Son and Heir of David according to the flesh, Son of God according to the Spirit, God of very God, the One who called Himself the Great I Am in John chapter 8, verse 58. See, that's how you get God saying, I Myself will shepherd my people and saying, my shepherd, my servant David will shepherd my people. There's no delegation, beloved, because we have a triune God. And what one person of the Trinity does, all the persons of the Trinity do in essence. My brother Jim Ellis, you guys, you gotta go back if you haven't done it and listen to his series on the Trinity. You can get the, you can get the recordings online. 
He talks at one point about the inseparable operations of the Trinity. That's one of the most marvelous things that I have ever heard. You can go all the way back to the creation. The persons of the Trinity never do anything alone. I am getting sidetracked. I've spent this week just marveling, marveling at the majesty of what Jesus is declaring. Here in John chapter 10, Jesus declares this astounding promise of God to be fulfilled in Him. He declares Himself to be God's good shepherd. Not just a good shepherd, the good shepherd. Promised through God's faithful prophets. He begins in John chapter 10 by indicting the bad shepherds of Israel just as His Father had done through the prophet Ezekiel 400 years before. 500, more like 500, but anyway. The bad shepherds condemned here by Jesus are not hypothetical, and they're not just in the past. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, and He's saying to them, you guys, you're the bad shepherds. He's connecting the Pharisees with the false prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament. He says false shepherds enter into the sheepfold the wrong way. They don't come through the door because they don't want to be seen. Why? Because they are thieves and robbers and killers. That's why. So they climb over the fence. He indicts these false shepherds as thieves and robbers. He blasts those who pretend to be shepherds of God's people, but who seek with all their evil hearts to steal those sheep away from the true shepherd, the good shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, just as here in John 10, these false shepherds steal the sheep from God's flock. They kill those sheep and they consume them. Ezekiel said, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Here in John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The level of violence that's attributed to these religious people by the prophets and by Jesus Himself is stunning. The Pharisees didn't think of themselves as thieves and murderers. But God did. When a man pretending to be an under-shepherd of God draws God's sheep away from their true shepherd, that makes that man a murderer in the eyes of God. Every preacher who distracts from or obscures or denies the absolute dependence upon, of God's people on the one good shepherd is stealing God's sheep consuming them for his own self-exalting ends instead of feeding them. There are plenty of those fake shepherds out there and they seem to be multiplying like rabbits. The judgment that awaits them is a fierce, terrible judgment if they do not repent. There are others in this passage whom Jesus calls hirelings who aren't willfully trying to lead the sheep to destruction, but who simply lack the love for the sheep and for the owner of the sheep that would drive them to faithfully protect the sheep. 
They're so selfish in their motivation that they cut and run as soon as any real threat to the sheep rears its head. They say, my, Mr. Wolf, what big teeth you have. I'm out of here. I put the parents of the man in the previous chapter in this category, the, the man born blind, along with a whole lot of other people. There's no short, there is no shortage of gutless hirelings out there either. So many who call themselves Christians today are driven far more by the fear of losing their comfortable place in the world than they are by love for God and for God's people. They throw the true people of God to the wolves so the wolves will leave them alone. So they can go on leading their pointless, passionless, self-indulgent lives. Many of those people will speak well of Christ and of the people of Christ as long as it's smooth sailing for them. But as soon as the first wave of opposition comes, they bail out and head for safety. Beloved Christians are not called by God to be hirelings. The same John who wrote this gospel says in no uncertain terms in his first epistle that the one who loves God loves the people of God and observes the commandments of God, every one of which is an outworking of love for God and love for God's people. God's people don't cut and run when God's people are threatened. Earlier in this series, we talked about the seven I am statements of Jesus. And these are not the only I am statements. We, we also said there are absolute I am statements. And that was raised this morning in the worship. But these are the seven I am statements that touch on the mission of Jesus at his first advent, his first coming. Each of them tells us something about his identity and his task, his mission when he was here. Two of them are in this passage. The third and fourth, I am the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. The faithful priests and prophets of old were the very ones who pointed men to the real door, the real way of access to God. They didn't bail out when God prophesied the suffering and death of Messiah through them. Prophets like Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12, like Isaiah in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, prophesied the suffering, humiliation, and death of the promised shepherd king. And they did so courageously. Israel never wanted to hear that. Good shepherds enter by the door of the sheep and they point the sheep to the door of the sheep, but the perfect shepherd is the door of the sheep. Every preacher or philosopher or blogger who declares that there are other ways into the sheepfold besides that door are thieves and murderers of God's sheep. There's only one door. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Beloved, Christianity is an exclusive 
declaration of truth. And if that gives you heartburn, get used to it because that is what we are called to proclaim. There's only one door. The perfect shepherd, well, let me back up. A good shepherd calls his sheep by name and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. There's some great YouTubes on that, by the way. But the perfect shepherd takes that to a whole new level. Jesus declares that He knows His sheep and is known by them. Listen to this. He knows His sheep and is known by them even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. You know how much knowledge that is? That is infinite, absolute, perfect knowledge. You ever hear a Christian say, nobody understands me? God understands you better than you will ever understand yourself. He knows you to the very core of your being. And beloved, if you're His, by the time He's finished making you new, you will know Him in a way that surpasses your knowledge of anyone and anything else in existence. You will know Him as, in some manner, you will know Him as the Son knows the Father. I can't even begin to get my hands around. A good shepherd feeds God's sheep. At the end of this gospel, you you know, some of you know what's going to happen between Jesus and the the resurrected Jesus and Peter. Great conversation in the last chapter. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. A good shepherd feeds the sheep of God. He lovingly sustains their lives and their well-being. But the perfect shepherd gives life to his sheep. Abundant life. We won't get to experience the full abundance of that abundant life that Jesus promises that he gives to us until we stand in his kingdom and in his presence. But beloved, we're not waiting for abundant life to start. We already have it. There is marvelous abundance for every child of God right here, right now. And that abundance has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with comfort or success or money or control or anything else that the world considers pleasant and desirable. Every bit of that abundance proceeds from our relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. The one who knows us perfectly, even as the Father and the Son have known each other from eternity past. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, I say to you that your green pasture, your quiet waters, your overflowing cup is the living God. And your good shepherd gave his life to make that true of you. When your life on this earth is all about Him, you know very great abundance. Now, how do we get that abundant life? A good shepherd risks his life for his sheep. David was a great example. But the perfect shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You know what the difference between those two is? One of them might die, and the other one dies intentionally. When Jesus speaks of laying down his life for the sheep, He's not talking about risking his life. 
That falls infinitely short of what Jesus came to do. And it misses the central truth of the gospel. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep deliberately. He gives it up in order to give life where there was no life. His life for ours. Jesus is talking about the cross. Verse 18 of John 10 is very, very clarifying. Jesus says, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Nobody takes Jesus' life from him. That's not going to (laughs) happen. These Jews had already tried over and over and over to lay their hands on Jesus. They tried to push Him off of cliffs. They tried to stone Him to death. They went after Him time and time and time again. And why couldn't they, why couldn't they carry it through? One simple reason. Nobody takes Jesus' life from Him. And until the appointed time came that God had decreed from eternity past... For Jesus Christ to be nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men to pay the eternal debt of your sin and mine, there was nobody that was going to take His life from Him because He had to lay it down. And He took it up three days later. He lays down His life willingly, deliberately, purposely in order to give abundant eternal life to lost sheep. Earlier this week, a dear brother shared something with me that I've been thinking about ever since. He said, the first Adam blamed his bride for his own sin. The sinless last Adam laid down his life to rescue his bride from her sin. Beloved, we are sheep in the sheepfold of the perfect shepherd. It is well with our souls now and forever. Yahweh Himself is our shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ. The question is, are we willing to follow that perfect shepherd? Jesus says yes. The sheep who belong to the good shepherd hear His voice and they know Him and they follow Him. But our good shepherd isn't finished making us good followers. And much of the New Testament is God's appeal to reluctant sheep to listen to our perfect shepherd more earnestly, to know him more intimately, and to follow him more closely. So I want to finish by taking just a couple of minutes to consider how that calling to follow better plays out. As we look look to and listen to and trust daily in our perfect shepherd, there are a few things we need to be very aware of. First is what I call the three D's. Of sheep. All sheep are dumb, defenseless, and dependent. Dumb, defenseless, and dependent. You can ask any shepherd. We need to know the three D's and we need to embrace the three D's. How many of you have ever seen an episode of Sean the Sheep? Really that few, I'm amazed. By the makers of Wallace and Gromit. Well, I, I got to tell you, I have a beef with Sean the sheep. Maybe I should say I have a lamb with Sean the sheep, you know, but nobody would take me seriously if I did that. And when I'm talking about silly cartoons, I expect to be taken seriously. 
What makes Sean the sheep so funny is that it's about sheep who don't act like sheep. In fact, it's a really good metaphor for the church acting in the flesh instead of independence on the shepherd. The sheep in Sean the sheep are smarter than their farmer slash shepherd. They don't need him to defend them against wolves and the like because they always manage to outwit their predators. It's all very funny unless you're actually a sheep and then none of that works. The most supremely dumb thing that a dumb, defenseless, dependent sheep can do is attempt any of the following. A, pretend you're smart. B, defend yourself. Or C, be independent. How much time and energy and heartache we would save if we would just be contented to be utterly dependent on our perfect shepherd. We would pray like our lives depended on prayer because they do. We would listen to our perfect shepherd like our lives depended on listening to him because they do. We would follow him like our lives depended on it because they do. We would be so much less distracted and encumbered than we are if we just rejoice in being sheep in the flock of the perfect shepherd. You know why the, this was addressed in the worship this morning. You know why the writer of Hebrews tells us that running the race of a child of God is all about fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of faith? It's because he's the only one who knows how to run it. He's the only one who can run it. If we don't run it in Him, we don't run it. Another thing we'd do differently if we were really content to be sheep in the flock of the perfect shepherd is we'd stop worrying so much about what's wrong with all the other sheep. See, one dumb, defenseless, dependent follower of the perfect shepherd doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about the shortcomings of all the other dumb, defenseless, dependent followers of the perfect shepherd. doesn't make any sense. If ever there was back page news, guys, it's the fact that your fellow sheep don't bring a lot to the table. Just a few lamb chops. You don't either. Big surprise. One of my most earnest and repeated prayers of late is that God would cure me of a critical spirit toward my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not doing that. And I pray, I pray that I'm not the only one he cures. I'm just about done here. God certainly calls us to hold one another accountable to his word and his way. He calls us, he calls us who are preachers to repeat. But beloved, if our attention is more focused on the flaws and sins of our fellow sheep than it is on the excellencies of our perfect shepherd, we've got it all wrong. And we're going to do more damage to the flock than we will benefit. And you know what we'll be damaging? The flock of Christ. The body of Christ. The bride of Christ. It's His flock. His body, His bride, it's not yours, and it's not mine. Your well-being does not depend on getting your fellow sheep to stop being as flawed as you are. 
The well-being of every sheep in God's flock depends only on the flawless character of our perfect shepherd. Ponder that. And the same is true of our mission as the flock of God. The advancement of the kingdom of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ does not depend on either the quality or the quantity of his defenseless, dumb, dependent sheep. It depends on him, the Lord of the harvest. We could, use, we could all use a large dose of, dose of uh, Jonathan Edwards' spirit when it comes to criticism of fellow sheep. Edwards says he is far too busy at home, that is, in his own heart, submitting his own life to Christ to spend a lot of time looking for failed submission in other Christians. When you spot a threat to yourself or to the little flock that you're a member of or to the big flock that you're a member of, what do you do about it? When one of your fellow sheep needs something or you need something, what do you do about it? When you detect deficiencies in your fellow sheep or in yourself that seem to be getting in the way of of your shepherd's agenda, what do you do about it? Well, since you and all of your buddies are dumb, defenseless, and dependent, what you do is you call out to your perfect shepherd and you nudge your fellow sheep to do the same, to call out, to your perfect shepherd and then you count on that perfect shepherd to protect you and to provide for you and to make you useful. And then you follow him as closely as you can follow him. That's faith and obedience. I'm going to close together and I want you, this will be a participatory closing prayer. I was going to do one of these last week, but you guys know this psalm. And what I want to do in closing is make this our prayer together to acknowledge the reality, uh, the truth about our perfect shepherd. So I want you to look at the screen up there and pray with me out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.